There's a man named Friedrich Nietzsche who died in 1899 after a brilliant but sad life. Raised in the home of a Lutheran pastor in Germany, denied the faith, and cursed God. Brilliant thinker. He wrote one book he wrote was entitled Beyond Good and Evil. And in that book he says, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, which results in living a life that is worth living, a long obedience in the same direction, uh, a, a call to, to significance. And so as, as we look at the book of Colossians, and Paul is calling this minority church in a major city to obedience, a, a long obedience. And what gives you the staying power to have a long obedience in the same direction? We are called to be faithful and prophetic and a presence in our culture. I'll explain there's That comes from a book by a guy named John Davison Hunter entitled Change the World, but it's, it's a faithful prophetic presence a long obedience in the same direction. What, what gives you the staying power? And in the book of Colossians, we're studying this book now, and the, chapter 3 it talks about the importance of community. It says, it says this, is, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts or rule in your hearts since as members of one body you've been called to peace. So, so it's all about community and rules about community living and how to love and care for one another. And, and the second way we have a long obedience in the same direction is to be centered on the reality of Christ. Let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts. Let the peace, know the gospel of grace. And the third, which we'll come to today in verse 16, is this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord, with thankfulness in your hearts. So, so community, cross word, a faithful, prophetic presence. For example, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, the Babylonian captivity have led the children of Israel into a time of despair, and Nebuchadnezzar sees the, the leaders of the Jewish nation and the brightest, brightest and the strongest and the best and taking them to Babylon, and among those are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in chapter 1, these men are involved in a cultural sensitivity training process, and they did it gladly. They're learning the Babylonian language and the culture and the arts. And the only pushback is they said, we really want to eat our food and not the food of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they go on this 10-day trial, and after 10 days, they, they look even better than the rest of the people. But, but, but really, they're, they're being faithful in a cultural training process in a foreign land. It's very interesting. No pushback. As long as it doesn't violate our conscience, well, we can do this. But then in chapter 3, minus Daniel, he's not there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot statue, either of himself or of his favorite god. And 
the law of the land is that when you hear the trumpet blow, you fall on your face and worship. And the trumpet blows, everybody falls on their face, and there stands these three strong, intelligent, good-looking Jewish guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're told by the authorities, if you don't bow down, we will throw you into a burning furnace. They said, well, we, we can't bow down. Because the Bible says very clearly, you shall have no other gods before the living God. You shall not make an idol and bow down to it. See, that's the prophetic part. You, you say, we can go this far, but no further. And so they seize them and they throw them into a fiery furnace. You know the story. And the men who threw them into the furnace were killed themselves because the furnace was heated very hot. But the men survived. Anyway, the prophetic presence of chapter 3. The faithful presence, but the faithful prophetic presence of chapter 3. So that's what we're called to. Paul's expecting the church of Colossae to be a faithful and prophetic group of people. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says this. He says, this gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it has come, bearing fruit and growing as it does also among you since the days you heard it in the whole world. He says this, this gospel is, is flourishing in the whole world, is going forth. He says chapter 4 in, in his life, he says, pray for me that, verse 3, at the same time pray that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison here in Rome. He says, you know, pray for open doors. Pray that the gospel go out. Pray that we be a faithful, prophetic presence. And it happens, once again, chapter 3, as we walk in community and learn from one another. Secondly, as we are cross-centered, the peace of Christ rules in our heart. And today, the third. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, lavishly, with power as you teach, instruct, admonish, encourage, and correct one another in all wisdom, depth of application. So this morning is going to be a long exhortation with a different ending. Uh, the long exhortation is this. We need to be sustained, refreshed, and changed by the Word of God. Refreshed, sustained, and changed by the Word of God. Church, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. The New City Catechism that I mentioned two weeks ago, question 42, asks, how do we hear and receive the Word of God? And here's the answer. With all diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. That's a beautiful statement. It is to be received with all diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. So this morning we're going to talk about that. I'm going to exhort you with that. Just encourage you with that. So, so 
first of all, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Scripture gives us a place to stand. Psalm 1 is really a statement of the entire book of Psalms. It's kind of the overview of what the book of Psalms says, and it says this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers. And, that's, and that is among the people of God, the, the Jews. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law he meditates day and night. Just stop. Meditates means that, that he, he, you, you mutter it. You think it out loud. You turn it over in your mind. You say, no, what does this mean in my life today? It, it, it's, it's, you think it out loud. For example, um, you're, you're dealing with the issue of forgiveness. And you've got the book of Ephesians. And you're thinking about Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another just as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And you say, Lord, uh, you've called me to be forgiving just as you've forgiven me by the cross of Jesus. And not only to be forgiven, you called me to be kind to people. So, Lord, let me be kind. Let me understand forgiveness. Show me what kindness is in this relationship. But you, you mutter it out loud. You meditate on it day and night. And then here's the promise. He will be like a tree planted, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. And whatever he does prosperous. Then the, the contradistinction. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the, the sinners will not stand in the judgment, nor the underpinned in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He, he guards the way of the righteous. He watches over it. He, he, he guides but the way of the wicked will perish. So the issue is like trees planted by streams of water who bears fruit in season whose leaf doesn't wither versus chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff, of course, was the outer husk of the wheat kernel and you took the wheat out and it was just, just a, a really almost a weightless <coughs> A particle that would just be blown by the wind, blown by here, hither, and there, by, by the winds of change and the opinions of men. We live in a husk culture. We live in a culture that, 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 that believes that the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the last opinion poll determines how you should live. But the Bible gives you a place to stand. It gives you a place to stand with a sense of calling, and, and joy and purpose. It, and to stand with dignity, it gives you an oughtness to life. Just a few examples. So just went to Washington State, saw our kids. My wife thought it was a good idea to take him to the aquarium and the zoo in Seattle, so we did that. I did it very reluctantly, but I did it. And uh, so we go to the zoo and, in Seattle, and uh, thankfully, Kids three and under don't pay, so both grandkids got in free. So I go to the window to pay and um, watching my grandkids and not really paying attention. Young man's there, and I glance up, and he's a handsome young guy, and maybe 18, 19, 20. uh, uh, 
He says, sir, do you mind me if I ask you your zip code just for our travel log? I said, sure, sure. I gave him our zip code. He said, wow, where is that? I said, well, it's really in Charleston, South Carolina area. He says, wow, I've heard that's a beautiful city. I said, it's a beautiful city. I said, so is Seattle, though. It's a beautiful city. And uh, then I started talking to him, and I noticed that he had uh, makeup on and very stylishly done hair and, and his fingernails were, were, were painted, and uh, my heart broke. It broke. And I thought, um, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've been raised in a culture that says that gender is fluid. It gives you no place to stand. And I wanted so desperate to talk to him and, and say, you know, the, the Bible says that God made us male and female. And he said it was very good. And that gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. And rejoice in that. And be glad in that. And there's freedom in that. And I thought about an article I read just a few weeks ago by a professor of history who said that, this is the title, when your, your children know more about gender fluidity than Auschwitz, your culture is toast. And he gave the example that in among millennials, that 65% could not define the Holocaust. 70% had never heard of Auschwitz, which is a concentration camp that the Nazis used to kill hundreds of thousands of Jews in Poland. And I, and I thought, the Scripture gives us a place to stand in these, these issues. The second example, I talked to somebody even this week about their marriage, and they said, well, you know, the marriage is just not working out, so we're going to end it. And I didn't know them well enough to get too deep involved, but I want to say, listen, the Scripture says quite clearly that, that marriage is a covenant, this, a lifelong covenant that can only be broken by, by, by adultery or a willful desertion where you will not be reconciled. I mean, it's, when you get married, you are married for life. And, and, and let me tell you, there's freedom in that. There's joy in that. You have to, you work it out. You don't say, I'm going to hang in there until it gets uncomfortable. You just, you're, you're there. But our culture says, no, it's just a contractual relationship that may or may not last. See, the Scripture gives you a place to stand. That's what I'm saying. In a husk culture. A zeitgeist-driven, no-rooted culture. Third example, very quickly. I don't know if you've been reading the newspapers this week or listening to the news, but, but uh, my, my heart has been broken over the situation with this little child, Alfie Evans. Bro broken. Let me start off by saying, I am an Anglophile. I love England and British history. I, I love... I love Richard the Lionheart died in 1199. Great story. I, I love the Magna Carta, 1215. I love the great wind that destroyed the Spanish Armada with Francis Drake and the Sea Dogs. I love the glorious revolution of 1688 when the Protestant king was brought to power, William and Mary, uh, Winston Churchill, jumping way ahead. Uh, I love BBC, uh, Downton Abbey. Super, okay? Let's just say it. Line of duty, very good. The Musketeers, incredible. 
So, you know, I, I love British things. But I tell you, my heart was broken this week over this Alfie Evans situation. A little boy, for the last seven months, has had a situation, and a group of doctors, one group of doctors said that it would be in his advantage for letting him die. His parents said, please don't do this. Uh, the, the Pope said, we will fly him to Yesu Bambino Hospital in Italy, and we'll give him the best help imaginable. The Italian government gave him automatic Italian citizenship. God bless Italy. And the courts in England, I don't know what's going on. The court said, no, we can't let this happen. I, I was thunderstruck. I was thunderstruck. That happened here. I get some of my Second Amendment buddies, and, and I, we, we make a statement. I'm serious. I'm serious. The National Review said this, an article by David French, who's a very good writer. He said, how does a nation reach a point where it, it will essentially kidnap a child from a loving, functioning family, yank that same child off of life support, deny him care as he unexpectedly fights to stay alive. The doctor said he'll be dead in minutes. Took him off life support and on Monday. By Friday, he was still alive. Died Friday night. And then blocks attempts by a foreign government to rescue him and provide him top-notch, care-free of charge. Free of charge. How does a great civilization sink to such barbarism and tyranny? Question mark, close quote. And I just say that the Bible gives you a place to stand, church. That life is sacred. It's a gift from God. So, secondly, we, we want to teach and admonish one another. There's a companion passage in the worship guide from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says this. Um, Psalm 19 is about glorying in the greatness of creation, verses 1 to 6, the beauty of creation. And then verses 7 through 11 is dealing with the law of the Lord. And it just goes through and it rehearses in six little statements the, the power of the Scripture. And it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, than from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. So I, I thought the only reason I don't come to the word more often, in part, is because I don't see my need. For example, it says this. It says, the, word of the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, restoring the soul, refreshing the soul. So restoring us from disorder and decay and sorrow and affliction and death, and it brings us back to a sure foundation. I need for my soul to be restored. I get out of step all the time. I need to be refreshed in the Lord. I need to be built up in the Lord. 2 Timothy 3 says that, that the Word of God equips us to do every good work, verse 17. So, so don't, do, you, do you say to yourself out, do you say, I need restoring, reviving, refreshment. I need to come to the Word. Holy Spirit, take the Word of God and open my eyes to see the beauty and grandeur of Christ. Or 
Proverbs chapter 4, I quote this frequently, says that the, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. See, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It gets brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. God's Word lets us walk in holiness and purity and hope, and we, we can flourish. But the way of the wicked... It's like deep darkness. They don't even know over what they stumble. The path of, of, of the way of the wicked is like walking into a room you've never been in before. that has all types of obstacles in it, and it's pitch black. You just stumble over everything. I believe that. It, it revives, restores, refreshes the soul. I need that. He says this, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. It's sure is fixed versus the fleeting and the unstable. Here's the question I want to ask you as I ask myself. Are you sensible, church, of your own folly? Are you sensible of your own weakness? Are you aware that you are simple? I'm simple. I'm very simple. I need grace every day. Are you sensible of your folly? Just in the last two weeks, I had a phone call two weeks ago and said, have you heard about person X? It was in the news. I didn't, hadn't read the news for several days. A pastor, fairly well-known, who had resigned one morning. He 65, resigned. And everybody said, great. And he came back that and he said, I've got to tell you, the reason I'm resigning is because I have been involved in an immoral relationship with another woman. And uh, three days later, a well-known pastor in Chicago resigned because of an inappropriate attitude toward numerous women. He's denied adultery, but he has said he did things that were wrong, and he had scandalous conversations, and he asked women to come up to his hotel room, and so forth and so on. And uh, it breaks your heart. And I tell you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, I've known many men much more gifted and godly than I am who've fallen into sin. I am one dumb decision away from blowing it, and so are you. So are you sensible of your folly? Is the Word of God shaping your character? Is it warning you? Is it showing you the beauty of Christ? The, the, it says that the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. I need rejoicing. And th these aren't stern commands. These, these commands are, 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 are the joy. Now, as the, word of, as the Word of God shapes you, it gives you joy and a future and a hope. It lets you go through the hard things of life, but do the right thing. But because God is good and He's glorious and He's kind and He's Abba Father. I was thinking about, about the goodness of God and I thought about another word that's used for good in Proverbs 31, which describes the godly wife. And it says, um, in Proverbs 31, verse 12 says, She does her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. 
And there are many men in this room and in the worship center who, who could stand up and say, I have been blessed of God, I'm one of them, to be married to a woman who all of her days has sought to do me good. We haven't always agreed on what that good would be in my life, but that's beside the point. I mean, but there's, I've never doubted for one minute the fidelity and the commitment of my wife for 38 years almost. And yet, all of us are married to sinners. And so, if a sinner can do you good, how much more can Abba Father, who is perfect beyond words, do you good? And so, the commandments of the Lord, he says, these, these rejoice the heart. And then he says, the, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. There, there is a, a fixed glory and joy about walking in the way of Christ. It focuses your attention. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The reverence, the worship of God is clean and it endures forever. Is the Word of God sustaining, empowering, and changing you? I'm not asking, do you know axiom? So I'm asking, are you muttering it and thinking it? And let it change your heart. As you read it, is your heart pliable in the hands of God by the power of the Holy Spirit? So, I plead with you, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Get it in your heart. Get it in your life. Think about it. One of our biggest problems is, is, is addressed in Luke chapter 10, and Luke 10 is a well-known story, Christ goes to the home of Mary and Martha, and um, they're having a meal, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, drinking in every word he says, and Martha is making a sumptuous feast for everyone there. And this is what it says. They, um, Mary was listening at the Lord's feet, but, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her to help me. Now, that's a legitimate request. You know. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, this, what, what this means is, is not that uh, we shouldn't pursue a rightful calling. I mean, our calling is a glorious thing. But what happens in the push and pull of, of work and parenting and grandparenting and doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that, it is easy to forget the one thing that really is foundational, and that's to seek God. It really is. And I think it's, it's really, really easy to be a believer for several years, and some of us are, are here, and, and we know certain things, and we can answer certain questions, but we're really not diving into the Scripture and letting the Bible shape our character. I mean, you give God and the Word, His Word, a, a passing glance. You've, you've read it, you've, but you're not really letting the Bible shape your character. And what I'm saying is the one necessary thing every day in my life and your life is to, is to sit at the feet of the Lord and hear from Him. And that's why I think the first thing you do in the morning is you get up and you Get on some whatever you want to wear, and you sit down, and you get a cup of coffee or a hot, hot cup of tea, and, and, and you 
you read and you think, and then you just write a little statement about what you've learned, and you say, God, change me by your Holy Spirit as I take in your word. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a simple thing, but you need to do that. The one thing necessary to shape your character, to bless your family and your relationships and your culture, and make you a faithful, prophetic presence wherever you are. So I exhort you to be people of the book. Now, now's when it takes a, a twist. The text takes a twist. It says, teaching and admonishing one another with, doesn't end, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So you sing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is a, a different application, so, but this is from the Scripture, so hang in there with me. He says, sing emotively with joy the Word of God. You, you sing it. You express it with joy. You sing it. And I know I'm, I'm saying that in a culture where, unfortunately, um, we, we don't really teach our children to sing anymore. And I, I, I say this, I love my grandkids, but they gave me something. I got some kind of sickness. Somebody told me grandchildren are Petri dishes. Anyway, I, I say this. Hear me. If you, if you just don't know how to sing or can't sing, you may want to take some lessons. Because this is the Scripture. We need to sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Music is a great gift. Um, see, the, the Scripture... The Scripture it says here in Psalm 19, let's go back to that for a second. The Scripture warns us. It warns us. So as we sing, we are warned and we're taught. Uh, as we listen and read, we're, we're taught. I, was, I followed with great interest what happened in Hawaii on uh, January the, the 13th of this year. January the 13th of this year, there was a, um, a missile alert sent out on, on, in Hawaii. Went to everybody's cell phone, the highway monitors, TV, radio, internet. Uh, that there was a ballistic missile attack coming to the uh, Hawaiian state, and and uh, and people. The reports were people were weeping in the streets. They were um, calling loved ones with their last message of of love and encouragement. And it went on for 38 minutes. And uh, they were saying, please go inside of your house or your hotel room. Like, I'm thinking, what, what difference will that make? You know, it's a nuclear missile. It's not, and I remember just real quickly as a child in elementary school during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had nuclear attack drills at Yackneyville Elementary School. And what we did is they would make us noise on the last, and we would, we would get beneath our desk as we awaited, you know, Khrushchev to send in. The missiles. What, what good is that going to do? You know. Uh, anyway, so this went on for 38 minutes, and then the message went, "No, false alarm. It's not happening. Have a good day. Hang in there." That type of thing. 
And so I fought it, and the New York, the, the New York Times gave a, the best report about two weeks later, January 30th, that said the, the Hawaiian missile alert wasn't accidental. Officials say they blamed a worker. They said uh, the worker has a long history of poor, of poor performance and sent the warning because he thought the state faced an actual threat, officials said on Tuesday. The worker misinterpreted testing instructions from a supervisor. Earlier, the governor said someone pressed the wrong button, which I thought, I can't pay my electric bill unless I tell them my mother's birth date and her, where she lived and the name of my pet dog when I was eight, that type thing. It says that this worker has had a poor performance for over 10 years and that he's been a source of concern for the department and twice before had confused drills with real-world events. Why in the world he had the ability to do that, I have no idea. He has been fired, by the way, to give you some, some hope. And I thought, there are a lot of false warnings out there. We live in the land of hurricanes. And there's a lot of, it may be heading this way, it may be heading this way, it may be, and then it doesn't. But they don't know. The Bible doesn't give false warnings. The Bible says the judgment day is coming. The Bible says you reap what you sow. The Bible says be, be very careful to do this. It, 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 it's full of warnings. But also the Bible is full of promises for rewards. Let me just read a few reward passages. This is out of the book of Proverbs. Just three passages from Proverbs 1, 2, and 3. A few verses. Proverbs 1. Listen to this, verse 7, regarding warning. And then great rewards. Just listen to great rewards. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are, they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Hmm. Chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield of those who walk in integrity. He stores up sound wisdom. He's a shield for those who walk in integrity. Man, I want that. Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Verse 11, discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Verse 16, so, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then a well-known passage, chapter 3 Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So I, I need that. I need warning. And that's why Paul says, regarding warning in chapter 1 of Colossians, he says that we proclaim him in warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He says, we're warning you. We're warning you. Then we may present everyone complete in Christ. So, we get the word in our lives by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is an unexpected turn. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Ambrose. Ambrose was one of the church fathers. He died in uh, 15, or excuse me, 397 at the age of 57. Died in the, in the year 397. He is known for several things. One is he mentored and encouraged a guy named Augustine. But Ambrose was from a privileged home. He was a successful 
governor of a province. And when he was um, at the height of his power, a young man, the bishop died. And there are warring factions in Milan. And no need to get into that. Arians and the Orthodox. Anyway, so uh, Ambrose went to this giant gathering of people who were going to elect a new bishop. He went as the governor of the province when he got there. Uh, people noticed him, and he had been very gracious and kind. And the, word, the story goes that a little child said, uh, let Ambrose be our bishop. And other people heard him, and they said, yeah, that's a, let Ambrose be our bishop. Let Ambrose be our bishop. And it was, you know, everybody started saying it. And Ambrose said, I, I can't do it. I'm not really trained. I'm, I can't be a bishop. I'm, I'm, I'm trained as an attorney. And uh, the emperor asked him to do it, and a week later he said, okay, I'll do it. But he, he hadn't even been, been baptized. And he threw himself in the study of theology. He was an expert in the Greek language, and so he could read Greek texts very well. And he became a, really a champion for biblical truth. He was a great man. He was friends with the emperor of the eastern part of the Roman Empire at that time, a man named Theodosius. And just as the background, Theodosius... Um, had a, a governor in a town called Thessalonica. There was a charioteer, kind of like the first-round draft pick in the NFL draft, a charioteer who, who did something wrong, and the governor put him in jail. The people were incensed. They went to the jail. They demanded his release. The governor said, I can't release him. And so the, the people killed the governor and several of the guards and released the charioteer. Theodosius heard about it. He was filled with rage, and he made an order to punish those, and he sent some troops to do so, and they gave the news that there was going to be a giant charioteer race. They brought him in the Colosseum. They locked the doors, and they killed 7,000 people, a bloodbath, 7,000. When Ambrose heard it, he was incensed. Ambrose had no protection, zero protection. He was just a bishop, and he wrote a scathing letter, a personal letter, to his friend, Emperor Theodosius. And he says in this letter, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs. He says, I, I'm writing this with my own hand, and I'm sealing it with my own signet, so that you'll know that only you and I know this. But he says, he says to his friend, the Emperor Theodosius, he says, the memory of our old friendship is pleasant to me, and I'm grateful to call to mind the kindness which you have frequently shown me as your friend, and now I'm going to speak honestly to you. Listen, O great emperor, I cannot deny that you have a zeal for the faith. I do confess that you have the fear of God, but you also have a natural temper, which if anyone stirs it up, you rouse it so much that you cannot restrain it, and it overcomes you. Would that no one would ever inflame it again. So I say, restrain yourself and overcome your natural anger by the love of Christ. I urge you, I beg you, I exhort you, I warn you. It is a grief to me that you're capable of, the, of unusual piety, but also horrific anger. The devil has envied you very much. You must conquer him while you still possess that with, wherewithal you may conquer him. Do not add any other sin to your sin by a course of action which has injured so many, killing 7,000 in Thessalonica. 
emperor, you need to repent and do so publicly. And that's the letter. And so Theodosius said, I have sinned. And Ambrose says, if you've been like David in your sin, be like him in your repentance. And so what he did, he said, can we meet at the cathedral in Milan? He said, yes. So Theodosius came to Milan with a royal entourage. And Ambrose made him outside because until he repented, he was not worthy to go to worship. And Theodosius walked up to this simple bishop who had no army, no protection, but he only had the word of God and a clear conscience. And Theodosius took off his royal robe, took off the signet of his office, fell at the feet of Ambrose and confessed his sin. And he stayed there during the whole worship service so that everyone could see. A year later, he went to Thessalonica and came to the town as a beggar, in essence. And he asked the people of Thessalonica to forgive him. It's an amazing story. That's the type of guy Ambrose was because he loved the Word of God. But he also saw that the Word of God could be brought into the heart of people by singing. And so Ambrose took the hymns that no one knew that were not part of their vernacular and brought it to the common people in their language and he introduced something called antiphonal singing where a group of gifted singers would sing a line and the congregation would respond in the same way. They would sing a line. and sing. He just wanted to get the Word of God into the hearts of the people. A guy named John Huss, you've heard his name. John Huss died in 1415. He was burnt at the stake because he preached the gospel of grace. And he said that popes can err and councils, councils can err. He says, but the Word of God does not err. And, and so they burned him at the stake. And one reason they didn't like John Huss is he took hymns in Latin, which nobody in the Czech region understood, and he gave it to them in their own language. And John Huss, as he's being tied to the stake, said, you may burn me, but within 100 years, a voice will arise that you will not be able to silence. And in 102 years, this is wild, Martin Luther started the Reformation. It's just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's unbelievable. But he, 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 saw, he said the people should be people who sing. And so I, I just say, brothers and sisters, Let's sing. Let's learn to sing. My two and a half year old grandchild, we've been doing the New City Catechism the last eight days, nine days. And every question has a song to it. And it is so good. And he's just been singing, singing, singing. And he's getting it down. He's two and a half. And this is my brain now. I cannot silence the music. It's there. But let's be people of the book. Let us rejoice in the goodness of Christ because it gives us a place to stand as we are a faithful, prophetic witness to our culture and to our neighborhoods. May God give us grace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I want to thank you for the the privilege of opening the Bible and hearing um, a message from the past that has present application. And I pray, Lord, we would let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, uh, teaching 
and admonishing one another. Uh, richly, Lord, with power. Um, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom or depth of application. And I pray that as we do that, that we would uh, be people who love and emotively express our love by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, that it would be something that, is, that, that the worship and, and the joy would just flow from us. Um, so, by the glory of your great name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just teach us and work in our lives. May, may the Scriptures change, sustain, restore, build, and encourage us for the task at hand. In Jesus' name, amen.